3: Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here. Um, I'm Andrew of the YouTube channel, Andrewism. And hi, this is, this
4: is Garrison. I've, I've not been on an Andrew episode in a while.
3: Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. And it's been a meme at this point that Aotearoa, or New Zealand, is forgotten, you know, from maps, both physical and mental. But those islands contain a rich history of activism that deserves a spotlight, you know. Um, Much of what I've discovered has been thanks to the academic efforts of um, Te'ahu. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. But their research formed the foundation of uh, my exploration of just some of the 20th century history behind contemporary Maori struggles for autonomy on the islands. The story of Maori oppression begins not long after the arrival of European settlers in the late 18th century. The Treaty of Waitangi, signed in 1840 between the British Crown and Maori chiefs, was meant to protect Maori rights and ensure a peaceful coexistence. However, as a bilingual text, it kind of sucked at being bilingual because some of the words in the English Treaty did not translate directly into the written Maori language of the time, and so the Maori text is not an exact translation of the English text, particularly in relation to the meaning of having and "ceding sovereignty. In other words, the full implications of what they were signing was not fully understood. The concept of private land ownership, as the British understood it, clashed with Maori communal land practices, which led to a significant land loss for Maori communities. The New Zealand government implemented policies and laws that systematically favoured European settlers, and throughout the latter half of the 19th century, Maori lost control of much of the land they had owned, sometimes through legitimate sale, but often by way of unfair land deals, settlers occupying land that had not been sold, or through outright confiscation in the aftermath of the New Zealand wars. And New Zealand Wars, where they also known as the Land Wars or Maori Wars, were a series of conflicts that took place in Aotearoa between the indigenous Maori people and the British government and its colonial forces. These wars spanned from the early 1840s to the late 1870s. And the underlying cause was that very struggle for land and resources, as European settlers were arriving in increasing numbers and more and more disputes had arisen over land ownership and the interpretation of the Treaty of Watangi. The wars were fought on multiple fronts involving different Maori tribes and regions. Conflicts included the Northern War, the the Taranaki Wars, the Wakaito War, and the Taranga Campaign. And these wars were characterized by a combination of guerrilla warfare, fortifications, and conventional military tactics. The results, as with pretty much all wars, was the disruption of, well, in this case, specifically traditional Maori social structures and economic systems, and the results and hardship um, for those uh, Maori communities. And so as the 19th and 20th centuries progressed, Maori oppression would also manifest in the suppression of cultural practices and languages by the government, as the government aimed to assimilate Maori into European culture, because of course, to them, European culture is considered superior. Maori children were often forced into English speaking schools where their own language and customs were discouraged. And that also led to a decline in the use and transmission of the Maori language and the loss of cultural identity for many Maori individuals. This, I think, could be characterized as a cultural genocide. Moreover, discriminatory practices were prevalent in various areas, including in employment, in housing, and in political representation. Maori people faced significant barriers and discrimination when seeking employment or housing opportunities. They were also underrepresented in political institutions, which limited their ability to advocate for their rights and influence decision making processes. Now, the seeds of contemporary Maori activism were sowing in the 60s and 70s. Struggles were taking place basically from the point of first contact, but Maori activism, as we understand it today, really launched uh, with a new fervor in the 60s and 70s. The late 60s and early 70s really marked a Turbulent period globally because there was an upsurge in class conflicts and social activism. You know, there were the independence movements and decolonization movements happening all over the world. It was a time when people all over were taking a stand against injustice and fighting for their rights. And this wave of political and social movements, also known as the New Left, had a profound impact on the islands as well. In New Zealand, as in elsewhere, student activism was really taking shape. Across the world, students were protesting against the Vietnam War. Uh, in the U.S., they were advocating for black liberation. And then there were also social movements gaining momentum, like the women's liberation movement, the anti-racism movement, the environmentalism movement, and the gay and lesbian rights movement. They were all, you know, sparking around the same time. So the New Left and Aotearoa was shaped by these international developments. The late 1960s had witnessed a surge in student activism and the emergence of various social movements. Again, environmentalism, women's liberation, anti-racism, etc. And so Maori protest groups were really picking up on those movements and those movements would shape the mindsets and the actions of Maori protest groups during that period. They would take in the analysis and the understanding of of racism and of the inequalities faced by Maori in a broader context. And so they will align themselves with class struggle as well and with the progressive ideal to the left at large. So at this point in time in the Maori struggle, uh, it was characterized as largely leftist. Um that is something that will change later on as the movements become more heterogeneous, but for now it's been mostly leftist. Even though there were some Maori protest groups that were less left-oriented and more just, you know, national liberation-focused, they still saw themselves as part of this broader left movement. Okay. Um, They were still actively working to incorporate these radical intellectual traditions, particularly Marxism and feminism, into the Maori struggle. In the late 1960s, there was this very strong collaboration taking place between Pakeha, or European New Zealanders, and Pakeha anti-racist groups and the emerging Maori protest movements. Um, One significant event that really brought them together was the exclusion of Maori rugby players from the 1960 All Black Tour of South Africa by the New Zealand Rugby Football Association. And that decision, of course, sparked widespread opposition because at the time, uh, South Africa was very much involved in apartheid and this decision to exclude Maori uh, rugby players from the team and from that particular tour uh, led to many protests under this banner of No Maori, No Tour, which focused not only on the exclusion of the Maori, but also on the morality of engaging with a country practicing apartheid. More collaboration would take place in the form of the formation of the Halt All Racist Tours uh, group, known as Heart, in 1969, which was an umbrella organization that united a couple of different voices and groups both Maori and Pakeha in their opposition to racially discriminatory sports tours. They also involved organizations like CARE, which included young Maori political activists among its members alongside Pakeha political activists in organizing these panel discussions to address the position of Maori in New Zealand society. And then while this is going on, there's also the growth in the influence of individuals like Ngahia Te Awekotuku and Tana Awatere, um, began shedding more and more light on the barriers that prevented Maori women specifically from fully participating and contributing to Maori society. They were out here criticizing the patriarchal nature of traditional Maori leadership and advocating for the speaking rights of Maori women. Drawn inspiration from the broader uh, non-Māori specific women's liberation movement as well. So
4: these were like other were were these other movements that were happening in New Zealand that were kind of working together, or this just like part of like a broader trend of these movements in the '60s?
3: Yeah, so they were starting to collaborate uh, at this point in time. Um, Both Pakeha and Māori political organisations were beginning to form connections and spark discussions. Uh, Those organizations obviously being of the leftist variety yeah. and the Maori organizations being uh, primarily leftists apparently align themselves with the leftists uh, causes and uh,
0: political ideologies.
3: But from like a more like indigenous
4: perspective and standpoint and like goals.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Got, all
3: right, got it. One particular organization which was formed in the mid-1970s was created by Maori women within the Maori activist organization, Ga Tamatoa, who had embraced a feminist perspective to analyze the oppression faced by Maori women particularly. And this awareness was fueled by their experiences of frustration and anger with the Maori land rights movement. Because these women are here and they're struggling for Maori rights as a whole, but then also they're facing issues uh, as women both yeah. in the organization and in broader society. Yep. So they're fighting to preserve the politics and culture and language of Maori society while also seeking liberation from the oppression that they would face in that Maori society. So it's a struggle for both preservation and also reformation of Maori society. Or rather, liberation, preservation
0: and reformation.
1: Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder...
3: There was also an increase in strike activity and general class struggle happening during the late 1960s, which had a significant impact on the political education of many Maori workers who were fighting for better wages and improved working conditions. Trade unions were playing a crucial role in providing an organizational base for Maori protest groups, as demonstrated by the emergence of groups like Te Hokioi and the Maori Organisation on Human Rights, or MWHR both located in Wellington and both strongly connected to trade unions. The secretary, in fact, of the MWHR, Tamapuata, was actively involved in the Wellington Drivers' Union and the New Zealand Communist Party.
4: Huh, These organisations
3: were advocating for an alliance yeah, between Maori and progressive elements within the working class. They viewed the fundamental contradiction in society as being between labour and capital, uh, between workers and bosses or landowners, and racism was seen as a consequence of class inequality. And the majority of Maori being working class were considered an oppressed segment of the working class. Um, both Teo Kokioi and MWHR promoted the idea of a unified struggle across racial lines, focusing more on class-based strategies as the most effective means of addressing racism and reducing Maori inequality. If you're picking up hints of class reductionism... Yep,
4: I was, I was actually going to mention yeah. that.
3: <laughs> yeah, there are some, some, some hints of that um, in this particular approach. And you'll see the consequences of that as we progress a bit further through the history. Like, um, could, you, I mean,
4: could you briefly explain class reductionism in case someone is like listening and is unaware of that concept?
3: Sure. So class reductionism is basically the idea that the exploitation of labor uh, and the exploitation of, uh, of the working class by the capitalist class is the fundamental, um, you know, a form of oppression within society. And it trumps all other social divisions, all other forms of oppression, such as racism or sexism.
4: Yeah, like, when you mentioned, like, they, they were viewing, like, racism as, like, a consequence of capitalism, right? That puts racism, like, after capitalism, but racism has existed way before capitalism. and is many ways, one exactly. of, it is, it is one of the main drivers of capitalism. Um, it's not
3: merely a consequence, it's actually, like, a motivating factor. Yeah, and particularly their position that... Um focusing on class-based strategies would be the most effective means of addressing racism. Yeah. Um, what well, I can see from a particular angle, considering that the majority of Maori were working class at the time, saying that the best way to alleviate their condition would be to focus on things you do to impact their class position. Yeah. Um, that may be true. But then at the same time, you also have to consider uh, that the racism embedded within New Zealand society is not going to go away just as a result of the end to the, that class-based oppression. To be fair to the MWHR, they were also played an active role in raising awareness about racism specifically, you know, in housing, in sports in employment um, and in violation generally of Maori political rights. Um, they also had a very strong stance on issues related to the Treaty of Waitangi, um, you know, the alienation of Maori from the land and the depletion of resources and the inability of Maori to access those resources. Um, their stance, interestingly enough, was really on sort of reclaiming the Treaty of Waitangi as a potential foundation for a harmonious and bicultural country, with the conditions that past injustices were addressed and rectified. However, like I alluded to earlier, there would be a shift uh, as the movements would progress. Uh, the inspirational momentum behind Te Hokioi and mwhr had begun to wane particularly during the early to mid 1970s and eventually in 1975 the mwhr would merge with matekite as part of the land rights movement which marked the end of their separate existence and also led to the rise of brown
0: power
1: Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder...
3: So, if brown power sounds like black power, that's because it's copied black power. (laughs) Similar to the ideologies of black power advocated by folks like Kwame Ture and Charles V. Hamilton, brown power centered on the complete rejection of the racist institutions and values of New Zealand society, and the belief that group solidarity was essential for effective collective action and negotiation. The proponents of brown power urged Maori people to unite, to recognize their shared history, and to foster a sense of solidarity and community. Significant emphasis was placed on the goal of Maori self-determination, which involved the ability for Maori to define their own objectives and to establish their own distinct organizations and and institutions. So this is like, at this point, brown power, much like black power, is the opposite of just um, assimilation or adjustment, or cohabitation with existing structures. It is a movement that desired complete autonomy from those systems, from those structures, and assertion of the freedom of Maori people to exist and not have their existence imposed upon. The organization, Gaya Tamatoa, initially drew inspiration from the revolutionary faction of the Black Power Movement in the U.S., However, as the group evolved, different interests and objectives had emerged, which led to a division within the movement. On the one side, there were the conservative, university-educated members, such as Sid and Hannah Jackson, Peter Rikis and Donna Awatiri. And on the other side, there were the more militant proponents of black or brown power, like John Ohio, Paul Kotara and Ted Nia. Eventually, unfortunately, the more conservative members of Tamatoa uh, really, took center stage in the movement. Their strategies diverged from the militants in that they sought of change through alliance with more liberal elements within the ruling class. They believed that by implementing appropriate legal measures, Maori could achieve prosperity. Um, so they were really advocating for like welfare and self-help programs for Maori development, and in fact. There was even some belief among them that New Zealand capitalism, coupled with the parliamentary political system, could be rid of racism. That you could extract racism from capitalism, and then everything would be hunky-dory.
4: Interesting. Um, yeah, which is like this perspective, which is like the of opposite course, of like the class
3: reductionism that we mentioned
4: previously.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, this this perspective is exactly um, the kind of thing that you see manifest again and again within. Um, Political movements uh, across the world, really, the interests of middle-class, university-educated uh, individuals, who are more focused on their own individual advancement within the existing system, than an actual thorough critique of the structure and history of that system. And so, when you have, when you're um, fueled by those individual interests and your focus on how you can advance in that system in business or in politics, whatever the case may be, it's very easy to just, you know, be like, oh, well, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I'm sure once we get the racism out of the way, you know, we can all succeed, wink, wink. Um, but of course, that is a rather myopic approach. And so as a result of the centrality of those individuals and that particular perspective in the movement, the meaning of brown power as a slogan kind of got watered down. It became more ambiguous and potentially associated with either Maori capitalism or revolutionary activity. Arguably, the same thing could be said for Black power. Um, A lot of people, a lot of advocates of Black power ended up going in the direction of Black capitalism, um, Talented tenth. Um black business, black wealth, that kind of thing. Um, and well, we've seen the consequences of that. I mean, there are more black billionaires and millionaires than they ever have been in human history, but that doesn't mean racism has been dealt with. Putting aside the capitalist-oriented advocates of brown power, on the revolutionary side, a new group would emerge to challenge the system. And this group and you're gonna, you know, gonna pick up on a little bit of a theme here in terms of inspiration. This group was called the Polynesian Panthers. Huh. Um Interesting. Established, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were established in June of 1971, and they had a membership primarily composed of Pacific Islanders, such as Samoans, Tongans, and Yuans. Uh And they drew, obviously, explicitly inspiration from the Black Panther Party in the United States. Uh, just a heads up: in Maori. Well, in New Zealand, the Maori and the Pakeha, the Pakeha, the Europeans, are the two primary groups, right? But in New Zealand, there are also minorities of other Pacific Islanders, um, Samoans and Tongans and um, Niuans and people from the other smaller islands within Polynesia, within the, you know, area from those various islands in Oceania and um, in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, a lot of them had arrived as immigrants uh, during the 1960s economic boom that had taken place in New Zealand. Uh, The founders of the Polynesian Panther Party were actually high school students. Um, They weren't university students. They weren't adults. They were mostly from working class, first generation families. That's cool. Um, And their parents were actually encouraged by the New Zealand government to migrate as cheap labor during that economic boom. But of course, as these things go again, once even like looking at this history and uh, for any significant length of time, you see certain patterns emerge. So governments are gonna invite you like, yeah, 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 migrants come, we'll take advantage of your labor. And then the second there's a downturn, migrants are to blame for everything. So as the production boom was subsiding in the mid 1970s and living conditions were deteriorating, Um, racism and police harassment against Pacific Islanders became even more prevalent. And by the way, Pacific Islanders does technically refer to Maori as well. Um, And the Polynesian Panther Party's position is that Maori are Pacific Islanders are considered part of the Polynesian Panthers. But I'm speaking specifically about the migrant Pacific Islanders uh, and the experience here. They're dealing with, you know, just like the Maori, they're dealing with low wages and poor living conditions and the government you know, being migrants, they were in an even more precarious position because government had taken a more aggressive stance towards overstayers, people who overstayed on their work visas, which put these first-generation New Zealanders at risk of deportation to countries that they had never visited, had never known. You know, being forced into these precarious circumstances, a lot of young Pacific Islanders were living in unsafe neighborhoods and a lot of them felt compelled to join gangs or to stay hidden at home for survival and so the Polynesian Panthers really emerged as an alternative option, seeking to provide a more positive path for young people in Pacific Islander communities. The Polynesian Panthers were particularly influenced by Huey Newton's policy of black unity and also echoed his distinction between revolutionary and cultural nationalism when debating the conservative members of Naga Tamatoa. The Panthers identified the root cause of Pacific Islander oppression, within the exploitative social relations of the capitalist system. And so they advocated for a liberation strategy that involved completely overthrowing the capitalist system and the social relations that enabled its existence. And so in practice, this meant that the Panthers expressed solidarity with other liberation struggles, oppressed groups and activists, and ultimately aimed for a global revolution. They worked to empower the Polynesian community and improve their quality of life. They organized strikes in factories with poor working conditions. They protested outside substandard housing through the Tenants Aid Brigade. Uh, They established homework centers to help address educational struggles. And they focused on raising awareness of rights and entitlements among Pacific Islander families who were often unaware of their legal protections. In fact, a lot of the Panthers' focus was on assisting individuals who were caught up in legal issues. They distributed pamphlets that informed people of their rights. They provided legal aid for court representation, and they organized buses for families to visit their loved ones in prison. In fact, the Panthers' support and advocacy earned them the gratitude of prisoners who often contributed a portion of their meager earnings to the movement. As they shed light on the daily struggles faced by Maori and also other Pacific Islanders, ranging from land claims to discrimination, police violence, the Panthers actively worked to unite Maori and Pacific Islanders in a pan ethnic coalition, which contrasted with the viewpoint of Nigatama Tuo, because they were prioritizing Maori unity above everything else. It almost reminds me of the um the way that sometimes in the US context, there were some organizations, or rather, there are some to me PSYOP organizations that are attempting now in the present day to emphasize African-American unity uh, above and before any other form of uh, pan-Africanism or black unity. So an insidious seeds to attempt to distance African-Americans from the rest of the black diaspora and to uh, foment divisions between African-Americans and African um, immigrants or Caribbean immigrants. Um, So again, the tactics, the strategies, the... It feels like a canon event at this point, that there will always be these um, individuals or groups who are trying to find ways to chop up and to divide uh, groups that should be united and have a lot to gain from being united in a common struggle. The Panthers, uh, along with many other Pacific Island youth, were actively working to support Maori causes including the 1975 Land March and the Bastion Point occupation. They became more and more adept at political lobbying, which became apparent during the Dawn Raids in the 1970s and the Springbok Tour of 1981. T. Ness was jailed for his actions during the tour, but was eventually released without charge. And Will Ailu along with Hone Harawira and others, were on trial for two years, only getting off the charge after and, you know, little cameo appearance here. Bishop Desmond Tutu, well-known South African activist, flew in to be a character witness uh, for their trial. And I think I'm going to put a pin on it there, um, cover the seeds of contemporary Amari activism, the trade union movement, brown power, and the Polynesian Panthers. Um, And in the next episode, we'll talk more about the development of the land rights movement and the... Weaknesses uh, of the Maori struggle in the post-1980s context. That's it for now for me. Um, I'm Andrew. You can follow me on YouTube at, at Andrewism and support on patreon.com slash This has been a
4: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly
1: at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too.